It's always a good thing to go to an education, but when you get an education on some of the great sports history of the game of baseball from a real expert, well, you know you have something special. We have that today with Vinny Laspinuzzo coming to talk to us about a very famous figure important to baseball. It's all coming up in just a moment. Hi, my name's Darren Hayes, and I know you've heard me on the Pigskin Dispatch talking about football history for years. Well, now I'm on a new mission, a quest to find sports history in other sports as well as football by learning through the jerseys and the apparel and the gear that the players wore and the franchises supplied their teams. It's an educational trip, and I'm taking you with me day by day, player by player, uniform by uniform, the Sports Jersey Dispatch. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my friends in sports history. This is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. Welcome once again to the Pigpen. We're here rolling into some great history of sports. And today we're going to talk a little baseball with one of our, our friends, Vinny Laspinuzzo, uh, an aspiring sports journalist, a uh, great historian of many different genres of sports. Uh, Vinny Laspinuzzo, welcome back to the Pigpen. Uh, it's great to speak with you again, Darren. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing fantastic. I mean, who could not be doing good when you have so many things going on? As we're talking, we have uh, the all-star break in sports, but there's so much interaction going on in all sports. You know, football's gearing up, the CFL. Uh, people are talking, you know, hockey with the movement. And, of course, you know, the all-star game in the Home Room Derby just a few nights ago. So things are great here. Oh, yeah. Like right over here, I'm... I potentially might be getting a job at the local radio station by my house. I'm very excited. I'm hoping to see what that entails. Well, good luck to you there, Vinny. We, uh, we're all hoping and praying you get that and you can continue your endeavors at uh, what you want to do is uh, you know traveling through the journalism of sports and wherever it takes you. So we wish you much luck. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, you brought up a topic uh, a while ago on, on actually another program we had you on pigskin dispatch uh when we were talking about one of your heroes that you did uh i believe like a thesis paper or something on and a very interesting figure in baseball history and maybe you'd like to introduce us to this uh, individual and uh we can start chatting about the history of the sport yeah like for my baseball history class there was one entire sports history class that i had back in college and that was sports history take a while guess how i did in it it was baseball it was a baseball history class absolutely aced the class i, I always was raising my hand everyone kind of didn't say anything because they knew that i knew the answers <laughs> for it uh and you know my my professor uh john uh john stout fantastic guy knows his baseball really well also knows his hockey pretty well also and he was very impressed by me but I always mentioned this man, this name way earlier on, but he didn't really mention him that much. But I brought attention to him that he didn't even know about, about this one man who I believe, out of any sport arguably, is the biggest snub out of any Hall of Fame, in particular for baseball. And this man's name is Doc Adams. Full name, Daniel Lucius Adams. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about like what, what era of time did he live in? Oh, 1800s. 18, a 19th century man in a game mm -hmm. of baseball. Okay. So he's right at the roots of uh, when baseball was getting going. Then I take it. Oh, it's a little more than just the roots. He is 
one of the roots. Okay. Well, please, please explain on. Well, I first want to talk about his backstory. Okay. He was, he was born in 1814 on November 1st. His parents were Nancy and Daniel, and they were physicians. In fact, Daniel, his father, actually uh, spoke the eulogy for George Washington's funeral, actually, which wow. I think is a really interesting story. And he saw, you know, he was, he was inspired by his parents to take part in medicine. So as he grew up, he decided to take medicine at Harvard. And then in 1838, he would set up his own practice. He'd go move down to New York City. But then he took an interest in sports. He always liked athletics. And this happened as he became an adult. And he said, hey, why don't I get interested in baseball? And so he joined the New York Baseball Club in 1840. And in case yes, the time is him as a physician, that's the reason why his nickname is Doc. It's because he actually was a physician. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, almost all doctors have that nickname at one point in time, don't they? Yeah, um, basically. And for him, it was just a source of leisure for him. It's where he, he didn't want, he, he never thought of it as just, you know, his main devotion. He was always a physician first. I am a student of medicine first. Baseball is just a little hobby of mine. I just want to use it as a place where I could socialize. And it was like the best way to describe how the environment was like, it was more like how a country club would operate. Um, And even then baseball was even spelled differently. It was base, base, space, ball. It was two different words. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so but it was a little bit different game uh, back when he would have started back there in the 1830s than what we may recognize, right? Oh, yeah. It was mostly formed from a lot of people think that Abner Doubleday created baseball. That's completely wrong. That was only created just to bring in the mythicism that baseball is an American game. In reality, it was made from immigrants from Western Europe that moved to america to via new york city ellis island and they mostly had rounders stickball and cricket so it came from an amalgamation of those sports and it formed into closer to the baseball we have but even with the baseball then it was still very different from now there was no really any regulated rules there was not a number of people you could have on each side of the field there wasn't exactly a clear understanding of what field you would have. It was very hosh posh. It was very loose. Again, like I said, more of a country club as opposed to like an organized game. Yeah. So you're saying, uh, I, I believe some of the descriptions I've heard, there was, there was like, everything was fair territory. There was no foul territory in that game. If I, if I understand or very little foul territory, or maybe they didn't call it foul ter- territory then. Correct. It was very little, none. The rules are very loose. You could basically do whatever you want, you know, for the most part. And, you know, when it came to Adams, he would stay with the New York baseball club and then him and several players as well came along with him to form the New York Knickerbockers. And the main founder and the driving force was Alexander Cartwright who, of course, went on to become a Hall of Famer himself, 
back in the 1930s, if I recall. But Adams was also just as significant to the team as well as Cartwright. But Cartwright got a lot of the credit, but some could argue that Adams is even more significant than Cartwright was. Yeah, because they actually ended up uh, develop or adopting the rules called the Cartwright rules, I believe, when they uh, had one. The Knickerbockers had a game against a, another New York City club, or maybe it was a New Jersey club. Is that, is that uh, uh, I think, yeah, it was one of the it was one of the other clubs at that time. Um, it, it was another one of the clubs at their times. Uh, the name escapes me in particular, but it was one of the one of the teams at that time. Okay. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Knickerbockers had a lot of uh, significance uh, to the history of baseball. Anytime you go into the roots of baseball, the New York Knickerbockers and these names, like you're saying, you know, Cartwright and, you know, Adams, and I think there's one or two others, they, they pop up all over the history. It's uh, definitely, uh, like you say, it's right at the beginning there. The might be the soil that the baseball's uh, sprouting out of. I would definitely say all of them, including Cartwright, Adams, Chadwick, and a bunch of other names, were the soil of the roots, if not the roots themselves, for it to get up. But I was talking about, I've been talking about how Adams came to the team, but I haven't explained what he is like, what he was like on the team itself. Well, he basically did everything for them. He basically did everything in Sands pitching. He was an infielder. He was an outfielder. He was a catcher. He even umped certain games as well. Hmm. Um, and he was basically your guy that would do everything for you. That's how significant he was for the team. He was, in many ways, the heart and soul and was, in many ways, the best player on that team because he could do anything. And I have to imagine he was probably the team physician or the trainer <laughs> by de facto, I'm sure, too. Yes, he was, actually. Was he? Okay. Um, and, you know, but there was something that he knew, noticed. You see, I've been talking about the game itself, but I didn't really talk much about the balls they used during that time also. Okay. These were not like the balls of today. These weren't, we, these were not stitched the same way. They were not as, they were a lot lighter. And anyone and their grandmother could have made a different ball and they would have it. But, so, like, 1849, Adams noticed that, you know, to try to throw these balls, like, if the outfielder catches the ball, to throw it out, it would take a while. He would have to, like, run over. But then he said, hey, you know, this is getting a little challenging. How about I position myself somewhere in between? I'm going to call this the short fielder. And this would be used to create an assist for the outfield so that way it could be sent easier to the pitcher's mound. Now, short fielder, that sounds interesting. That's the shortstop. He created the shortstop position by wow. doing that. Now, what positions were in place before the shortstop? Did they have the the other uh, three bases, it's catcher, pitcher, and then they have four outfielders then? It, it ranged from around 8 to 11 players per team. You had your pitcher, you had your catcher, you had a few infielders, you had a few uh, outfielders, but Adams was the first one to designate a spot in between the infielder and the outfielder to catch the ball because of its very, very uh, poor aer- aerodynamics. He, he was designed basically to be the relay guy from the outfield. Essentially, he decided to do that because it was new. He said, hey, you know, 
let me just make it a little easier. How about I just put myself right in between here? Okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. That's, I'd say that alone, I believe is deserving of the ultimate honor, but it gets way, way, way deeper than that. Okay. I would not be pushing this guy if it was only that. All right. You got, you got us on the edge of our seat. Now you got to dig a little deeper here in this onion. Well, yeah, it has layers just like Shrek said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, he loved doing this vision, but at the same time, Adams knew that this could not go on forever. So he went in the city and found a Scottish immigrant that worked as a saddle manufacturer. Um, and he said, Hey, you know, Hey, sir, I, I need some help here. I play for a baseball team. They're called the Knickerbockers. I was wondering if you could help me design a ball that's better, a, a ball that's better. And they said, sure. So what you would do is he would get a few ounces of rubber and then the saddle would tell him to tie the entire thing in yarn. He would do that entirely and then get cowhide, get leather, get leather, the same leather that the saddle saddler used and encase the entire ball in it. And then once that happened, he would stitch the leather with each other to encase the entire rubber and the yarn into one. Now that sounds familiar now, doesn't it? Hmm. Yeah, you're correct. He is the man that is responsible for the way the ball is stitched. No, now that was more like a lemon peel. It evolved, but he was the, that I recall, he was the first one to make it in that regard. Now, just, just yeah. for some perspective, what before that, what were the, okay, we were saying you had a, a piece of rubber yarn wrapped around cowhide leather wrapped on it and stitched. What, what were the balls constructed of before that? Do you know? Uh, like way early on, it was like any ball they really had. Like sometimes it would be some leather. Sometimes it would be rubber, but Adams was the first one to stitch it in such a way that it would hold together in its best. Cause that's how the saddler told him to do it. To really taught the, the, the line taught, taught the um, turf of twine this in the right way. So with those two sort of oddly, like almost like figure eight shaped pieces that the piece together. Now, earlier on, it was more like the lemon shape, but then over time it became that, but, but they, they called it the lemon in terms of like the lemon peel design. Like, I think you might've seen it. Like, I think it was the first one to create like the lemon peel shape of the ball. And it was called that because it was around the same size as a lemon and it would stitch unlike the figure eights. It was like, like across horizontal and then vertical on it. That's what the balls were like. And that's how he was taught uh, how to do it. So, so were they uh, like round or were they more uh, you know, lemon shaped? Like I'm picturing like a lemon shape with points on the end of it. Am I thinking wrong? It sometimes did jut out very, very slightly at the ends because that's where both of the, uh, that's where the, the, the stitching would hit but it would mostly be round. Well, that had to be interesting to try to handle a, gr- a grounder with that shape of a ball, you know, taking all kinds of crazy hops, I'm sure. Well, yeah, but there actually was, but a lot of people were very impressed. Okay. So impressed. How impressed were they? They said, this ball is fantastic. You got to make more of these. Yeah. I, I guess I like these too. And so 
he be the first ever person to a main manufacturer of baseballs. First one to ever do it. First wow. one to ever do it. But and these balls. And there's another thing with these baseballs, too, with the saddler taught him and how he was able to do it. There's another reason why teams were impressed as well, because these balls hit much harder and they could withstand so much more uh, hitting. And they also went way farther than the other balls, too. Like he he was impressed. He didn't even expect this. And so he said, you know, how about I I like this position, so I still want to keep it. So he decided, hey, maybe you can move second base a little off of the base. And in between third and second, I will rest my shortstop position here. Because the reason why that happened was because the ball was able to go far enough where it could hit the infield and the pitcher's mound. So he was so Adams moved his vision into the infield as opposed to somewhere in between the outfield and the infield. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. He's the reason why that position is where it is. So, so he created the position shortstop. He had it in one location on the field, developed a better ball and changed the location of that same short uh, stop, I guess, and moved them to the infield. So changed the location of them based on his invention of making a better ball. Yeah. And at the same time, he wasn't just also a player for them. He also was a big executive. He was the team's vice president and would be a six-termed – he would be the team's president for six terms. He was very, very successful in during his time. And he would be the person in charge during this time of leading the committee on rules and regulation. So what he did was that he took the original rules – and he slightly modified him over the time. And he did this because more clubs are coming up. You know, the Eagle Club, the Gotham Club. And, you know, it's because all these teams had somewhat different rules. And so the Eagle Club in 1854 said, hey, you know, everyone has different rules. It's a little challenging for us. I just wish we had an entire just all unified. Just be all unified. And so he said, okay, let's have a committee. We'll have unified rules. I'll be the head. You can trust me with this. And so they agreed on the standardized set of rules. And this would go on for several years. And in 1856, when there were 12 clubs in the area, and the permanent set of rules were decided upon with the Knickerbockers as a senior organization. Very impressive. Mm -hmm. Now, let me, let me pause. Okay. You got us up into 1856 there. Now there's something pretty significant in 1849 that the Knickerbockers did. I wonder if Doc Adams had something to do with that. They were believed the first team to wear uniforms in any, uh, at least in the game of baseball, maybe it's not any sport. And they, it was not a uniform we'd recognize today. I believe it was like straw hats and a white button-down shirt. And I don't know what else they wore, but I know the straw hat and the white shirts. And that was 1849. Did Doc Adams have anything to do with that? Based on what I've seen, no. He was not instrumental in the uniforms. However, he was significant in terms of how the game was played. Um, 
So well, let, let's just say he probably was one of the, the guys wearing the straw hat and the white shirt, I would oh, imagine. He, he definitely was one of the people using that. Even though there's nothing to indicate that he was significant in creating such uniforms, we know for a fact that because he was a player and a president and a contributor and everything as part of the team, no doubt he was wearing the straw hat as well. But this man did – he basically – during this entire time, he was one of the main figureheads of the sport because he was the presiding officer and he'd be the one to conduct meetings with all the clubs in the area. Okay. So he, he's sort of the, the guy to go to when, when there's something rules, uh, they need to convene a committee on the rules or anything. He, he's the, the head man there. Well, the thing is, I haven't even said what the rules they decided that Adams was instrumental for making happen in the first place. Okay, well, let's, let's segue right into that. Well, that following year, it was 1857, he decided to make a resolution. Okay, we're all together, all 12 of us. Now let's put forward these ideas. And he's the main creative force behind as well. And so he would have the field in the shape of a diamond. The distance between each of these bases will be 90 feet from one another. And the distance between each of these bases and the home plate will be 45 feet, almost like a right angle in a sense. And so starting to sound very familiar. He also, they also decided that the winner of the game would be the team that gets the most amount of runs at the end of nine innings. Before there was no set of there was no set of shape, there was not really a consistent number of who they would have, and whoever would win would get twenty one runs first. But now they go on for hours, sometimes, sometimes days. But Adams and the rest of the people said, you know, people have lives to do. This is not our only profession. This is mostly a hobby for us. We need to go home to our families. We need to go home uh, and we need to go back to work as well. So nine innings, each inning can go on as long as they can. But after these nine innings, the game is over. Whoever scores the most runs wins the game. Now, did they have the, the three outs to end an inning at that time? At that I not entirely sure, but they did have a few outs, and they had the, they had the base field. Most of that stuff they did have. Okay, all right, interesting, interesting. So he must have had uh, a real fetish for for the number nine because you're you're saying he had you know nine players. He had you know the ninety uh, feet baselines. Uh, you know the nine innings. So nine must have been a pretty important number to him. He's also the reason as to why there's nine people on each side of the field as well, and nine innings. The reason why they went with nine isn't entirely certain, but it's mostly because it created a much easier sense of unity because there wasn't much. It wasn't entirely. It wasn't entirely sure what they would have, but he figured, hey, I love the shortstop position here. I'm going to create four infielders and then three outfielders because. I want to also make it a little bit challenging for the people that hit the ball a bit closer and a little bit, and a little bit easier if you hit it beyond because the balls went pretty far. 
and nine on each side. It also was easy for that. And nine innings, very easy math. And so mm-hmm, because the convention was declared as permanent with their constitution, they became the first ever governing body of the sport called the National Association of Baseball Players for the NABBP. And Adams was the main executive and the delegate for the Knickerbockers. And he was there for until 1862, and he was a member of the team for 17 years. Wow. But there was one final piece of legislation that was responsible for him that got drafted. And it was called the fly catch, in which instead of instead, which allowed the fielder to get an out at the catch of the ball instead of the bound rule, which in case you know what the bound rule is, it's when you the ball hits the ground and the fielder catches it. Now that's a fair ball. What he says, like if the fielder catches the ball and the glove is coming down, catches it, fly catch. And yeah. That hmm. is still part of the game as well. Right. That's so a pr- pretty important part of the game. <laughs> I mean, everything I, I would argue everything he's done was a very significant part of the game. But, you know, he wasn't there forever. He then moved to Connecticut with his wife and his five children. And they moved to Connecticut and they were the he was the first president of the Ridgewood Savings Bank. And then he would move to family to New Haven. And he'd keep it on his eye on his sons at Yale. But then he would remain for the rest of his life until he passed away in 1899. And he's currently buried with his wife in New Haven's Evergreen Cemetery. Wow. You know, I wonder, I mean, you're saying, okay, that end of his life cycle there after, after he did most of his work on baseball, you know, some you know decades before the game of football and, and basketball. But there was, I wonder if uh, he was an inspiration or if he knew Walter Camp, who was in New Haven, a Yale student who did a very similar thing to the game of football, transferring some European sports into an American sport. So I I wonder if he was an inspiration to Walter Camp. That I'm not entirely sure. I mean, they were, he was, he was by Yale because he checked on his, his sons. There could have been a chance that, you know, Camp did run into Adams, but we don't know about if they had any exchanges or what happened there, but two very significant men regardless but there's an issue here he's not in the hall of fame why was that well like i said before it's because adams never really public was never up in front and always really said it but that was until 1980 when the new york mets were bought by nelson doubleday jr and this reignited the false claims that Albert doubleday created the sport and so as a result, the New York Times received a letter. It was from Nathan Adams Downey, who was Doc Adams' great-great-grandson. And he said, you know, I'm sick of hearing this. I want to finally set the record straight. And he had a memoir from Adams' son, Roger, about everything that his father did. Literally everything. Everything that I told you right here and then some Roger detailed with first first-hand accounts of everything that happened and in 2014 saber the society of american baseball research named him an overlooked 19th century legend and after 200 years after he was born 
the Baseball Hall of Fame finally nominated him in 2016. But in a in a makeup of 12 of 16 people, you need 12 people to say yes. But he missed by two votes. Imagine, imagine saying with a straight face after saying all his accomplishments, and still six people say no to that. Hmm. I'm yeah. not one to lump on other people but in my personal opinion you need to have a real sense of hubris to say that with a straight face because every single thing this man did these are not trivial bits of information like something as simple as a position on the field is something that he's credited for the innings, the shape of the field, the number of people on both sides, basic functions. He created all of that. He's responsible for all of this. And when you think of all these basic things, you think of one man, Daniel Lucius Adams. Millions around the globe. Whenever you play the sport, whenever even if you sat, stand on that field, that field is in that shape because of him. That position you're playing, it's because of him. That motion, because of him. The inning board being like that, because of him as well. Again, he is one of the founding fathers of America's pastime. If I personally believe that there is no, and people talk about snubs in the Baseball Hall of Fame who they think should be in, some people that get annoyed that others get in and say they don't make it. But to me, I don't care what player you want. I don't care what coach you want. I don't care what other person you want. But to me, based on everything I've said here, I don't. I believe Doc Adams is by far the biggest snub, not in Cooperstown, and I don't think it's even close. Well, His I, impact on the game is unchallenged. I, I think there are many that agree with you. As a matter of fact, I, I've come across a, a website, you know, DocAdamsBaseball.org, that's saying a very much a similar uh, message that you are saying, and there's there. there you know, petitioning because uh, he is eligible in 2025 for the ballot for the classic baseball era ballot. And that's what the, the whole site is around telling the history of Doc Adams of uh, very much everything that you have, have said here. And uh, they're, they're petitioning for him to be on that ballot and to be uh, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. I mean, we pushed for it in 2022. He wasn't even nominated as one of the 10, 10, uh, 10 nominees. And even though I was happy with who got nominated and the two from that list they made it, that being Buck O'Neill and Bud Fowler, two I really much wanted. At the same time, those two, I absolutely love their inclusion. And I think they're both significant for the game of baseball itself, especially Bud Fowler being the first ever, you know, black baseball player. But if it wasn't for Doc Adams, they arguably probably would not even be playing baseball, arguably. Yeah, I would it, say for all these people, they would not be there if it wasn't for Doc Adams. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, you know, American sports, baseball is really the first, uh, I, I believe, the first professional sport. Uh, yeah. It's, it's. Uh, I know definitely other sports, you know, basketball and football, probably hockey, were modeled and they envied 
what baseball was doing, you know, with the statistics and you know, keeping track and the journalism and everything. So he really started this movement by modifying the game and giving it some substance that people could do that. So he really is probably integral in all of American sports. Yeah. I mean, the thing that a lot of people talk about is like, they think about this game as being so traditional and on and everything, but at the same time, it, I think it's very hypocritical to talk about all these traditions to the game, but blatantly ignore the person that's responsible for such traditions even existing in the first place. Like, how can you say you're a sport all about tradition and caring about the history of the game when you basically shove the person that's responsible for such traditions and such basic understandings of the game to the side and act like he's not important? Yeah, I understand that not everything's for a for. I know that not everything's going to get a plaque. I'm aware of that, but if anyone deserves it, it's him. He is literally responsible for why all these people have jobs. All these people that are playing the sport around the around the world are playing a game that he helped mold in the palms of his hands. Like, it's honestly ridiculous. And to me, it shows a, a real lack of appreciation and a real lack of motivation to really truly want to preserve that history and tell the story for millions who there's because there's millions of people that don't know who doc adams is there's probably more people that think that abner doubleday was responsible for baseball but no doc adams and they 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 do nothing for him and it's absolutely sickening to me it it really is and i have no words it's just pathetic honestly well I think that uh, with, you know, messages like you uh, said here tonight and, uh, you know, others uh, carrying that banner and beating the drum, uh, maybe we can change that and change a little bit of history and and, uh, re-educate the masses on, you know, the real history and the real development of baseball and how it became a, a great American sport and a lot of the fundamentals of the game came from this one man, Doc Adams. And, uh, you know, Vinny Laspinuzo, we really thank you for, for sharing this story and, uh, you know, enlightening us on what a great man Doc Adams was for the game back in the 19th century. So I thank you for that. Very welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. We're dribbling around and see the shot clock's almost out. So we got to put up our shot and come back tomorrow for some more great sports history. We invite you to check out our websites, jerseydispatch.com and pigskindispatch.com. Not only see the daily sports history, but to experience the preservation of great events and people that play the games. Find us on Pigskin Dispatch. It's also on social media outlets of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all your daily sports history. Pigskin Dispatch is happy to be associated with the Sports History Network, the sports headquarters of yesteryear, found at sportshistorynetwork.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.